John, John's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 27. The Gospel of John, chapter 5 and verse 27. God the Father is the subject of this sentence. And he hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. God the Father has invested in God the Son the power to execute final and eternal judgment upon all men. Now notice that the Lord Jesus Christ is described in this verse 27 as the Son of Man. That is a messianic title. Uh, He is the true representative man. He is the last Adam, just as the first Adam uh, represented the race. The Lord Jesus Christ is God become man. He's the only man who has ever lived who is without sin. But as well as being the saviour of the world, the Father has also bestowed upon his Son the office of judge. And this fact of coming judgment must have a bearing on how men live. Now the Lord says in verse 28 here, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And he is speaking of the voice of the Son of Man, of his own voice. And so the Lord is telling his hearers not to marvel at his status as judge, which implies that his hearers were marvelling at it. You see, as far as our Lord's contemporaries were concerned, the expected Messiah was going to be a political leader who would free the nation from Roman authority. And so they were looking for a Messiah who would restore Israel's earthly independence and greatness. Rather than one who was the supreme judge of all men and the giver of everlasting life. So the Lord tells them that the way in which they will react to him will determine their destiny for all eternity. That is how important the name of Jesus Christ is. It determines a person's status for all eternity. The most important question that any man must ever consider is, what think ye of Christ? Because the answer to that question is the key to everlasting life. 
And so the people must cease marvelling at the Messiah's true nature and start believing that he is the judge. They must start believing that he is both saviour and judge. And if they do not believe this, their souls are in eternal jeopardy. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. The voice of the carpenter's son from Nazareth. Marvel not at this truth. Marvel not at the doctrine of a Messiah who raises the dead. A Messiah who is not a social reformer, but who gives men everlasting life. You see, people in our own day want a Jesus who's a social reformer. A Jesus who believes in globalism and one world togetherness. A Jesus who is all-inclusive whatever men feel that they wish to do. That's the Jesus people want today, but it's not the Lord Jesus of the Scriptures. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is no political leader or social reformer. He is the Saviour of the world and the Judge of all flesh. And the Lord is encouraging the people here to focus upon their immortal spirits and to consider the issues of eternity. People today wrapped up in their busy lives and in the things of time must realise that for each one time is soon to end and eternity is soon to begin. An individual's personal relationship to Christ is of infinitely greater significance than they ever imagined. Each person must individually consider these words of verse 28 here. There is a specific day coming in which men are going to have to hear the voice of Jesus Christ, whether they like it or not. Passing from this world and being buried in the earth or burnt at a crematorium will not render anyone immune from hearing this call of Jesus Christ, this personal summons. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. That means the atheist, the agnostic, the Muslim, the Buddhist, the Sikh, the Hindu, the Jew, they will all hear the voice of Jesus Christ. We must all appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, many might think that they can successfully get through their lives without any need to refer to God and to God's appointed judge, his son. But what a rude awakening is in store for them. The dead are literally going to be woken up from death. They are going to be called from their graves to render an account about their lives. Many imagine in their modern progressive sophistication that at death a man passes into oblivion, nothingness. Well, that is true of the animals, but it's not true of man made in the image of God. Man has an immortal spirit. But because people think that death leads to oblivion and nothingness, they also think that it does not matter if they ignore God and his demands upon them in this life. They forget that man has an immortal spirit. They do not realise that every single human being who has ever lived is going to be called out and raised up from his earthly grave. No matter how they died, if they drowned in the sea, if their bodies were destroyed in an explosion, they're still going to be raised up to meet Christ. Verse 29. And they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So we are taught here that there are going to be two types of resurrection. Non-believers will not be able to bypass the day of judgment. They will experience a resurrection of damnation, a passing into an eternal condemnation. Our Lord will say upon that day to all who have ignored him, as we read in Matthew 25 and verse 30, cast ye out the unprofitable servant, into the outer darkness, there shall be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth suggests felt experience in hell. The resurrection of damnation is described as an outer darkness. Full of misery. Our Lord also spoke of the ungodly as entering into hell where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. 
Mark 9, 47 and 48. The Lord is using there the metaphor of a worm never ceasing to eat the flesh of a rotting corpse. If only our sophisticated, progressive, modern, liberal, woke generation would realise the reality of hell. God's judgment is real. This is how the Apostle Paul speaks of the resurrection of damnation. Romans 2 verse 8. Romans 2 verse 8. But unto them that are contentious, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, God will render indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, upon every soul of man that doeth evil. The Apostle John makes a similar warning to unbelievers in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10. Revelation 14 and verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, undiluted, into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up for ever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. Much contemporary Christianity in inverted commas ignores these realities. Preferring to speak of a God nowhere to be found in the Bible. One who loves all men unconditionally. We often hear the phrase God's unconditional love. Don't, do not use that phrase. It's not biblical. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke 13 verse 3, and this is a condition because it begins with a conditional conjunction, the word accept. He said in Luke 13, verse 3, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That's the condition. But there is a false Christianity afoot, abroad. Many have been taken in. God loves all men unconditionally. Whether they repent or not, he accepts you just as you are. That is not the God of the scriptures. Now our Lord further taught concerning the day of resurrection. In Matthew 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. That's not one world togetherness, that's separation. The Lord is speaking there of his own coming in judgment. Notice he calls himself again the Son of Man. And so 
What is our message to the world? What is our message? Is it we want to create an inclusive society? Uh, We want to improve people's social conditions? What is our message? We want to bring the nations of the world together? Is that our message? Well, the apostolic gospel is this. We find it in Acts 17, verse 30. Acts 17, verse 30. This is what Paul says in sophisticated, well-educated Athens. He says, God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And so the fact that those who put our Lord to death could not defeat him, for he rose from the dead, is vital evidence to the world that Jesus Christ is returning to this earth as the judge, just as he said he would. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Verse 29. Concerning those in the graves, they shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now we see from this verse that the deeds which men have done in their lives will be the basis of their judgment. It is only those who have done good who will experience the resurrection of life, says our Lord. Now, the Bible plainly teaches that no one can ever earn his salvation by his works. Salvation is always an act of God's grace received through faith. Nevertheless, a man's holiness is the only valid evidence that his faith in Christ is real. How do we know someone is a real Christian? It's not by their profession. The scribes and Pharisees professed to be real believers in God, but they were not. Anyone can say that he is a Christian. Anyone can put C of E on a census form. But the claim can only be vindicated by a practical holiness of life and separation from the ways of this world. Anyone can claim to have had some wonderful, amazing experience. But that is not proof of being a Christian. Someone can claim to have been wonderfully healed, but that's not proof of being born again. The only evidence for being born again 
is holiness of life. And so, holiness is not an option in the Christian life, as various places in Scripture plainly testify. Let's just look at a couple of them. James 2, verse 26. Faith without works is dead. Believing in Christ without holiness of life is a dead, useless faith. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. How plainer could it be? 1 John 2 verse 4. 1 John 2 verse 4. He that saith, I know God, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Yet there are many today who follow immoral lifestyles and say that they are Christians as well. Now those only will be raised up to everlasting life who having been saved by grace then lead holy and obedient lives. And on the day of judgment the basis of their salvation will be the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the judge is looking for the evidence that the faith is real. And the evidence is holiness. And not only our deeds, but also our thoughts and our words will be the object of God's scrutiny on the great last day. Now, that that, that is terrifying. Matthew 12, verse 36. Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Every idle word. Well, you are going to have to account for them. There is no simple deed or thought or word that can be hidden from the one who will one day call all men from their graves to appear before him. Hebrews 4, verse 12. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Nothing can be hidden from the eyes of Christ the judge. Nothing. Returning again to the book of Revelation. Revelation 20 verse 11. I saw the dead, the great and the small, stand before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged 
out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. The dead were judged according to their works written down in the book. Revelation 20 verse 15. If any was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. Now that is a further description of the resurrection of damnation. And we again note the emphasis upon a man's works. In other words, his holiness of life. When our Lord comes as judge, (coughs) he will be looking for holiness keeping God's commandments. And this is the necessary consequence of his wondrous grace working in us. Now, Paul describes our Lord's return in judgment in the following way, in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul speaks of the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Does the world out there realise this? Do they realise the danger that they are in? Is the church telling them? Or is the church telling us all about climate change? Which is more important? And so, there in 2 Thessalonians 1, we see Paul referring to the resurrection of damnation. Paul again refers to this day when giving important advice to the younger minister, Timothy. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. I charge thee in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. So Paul uses our Lord's future appearance as judge as the basis upon which to exhort Timothy to be diligent in his ministry. Paul likewise knew that he himself was living out his life in preparation for the day of judgment. And so towards the end of his life he asserted this, again in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not only to me, but also to all them that love his appearance. And so there Paul is explaining that he has been living out his life with the focus of standing before Jesus Christ as judge. 
Now, because by grace the Lord has enabled Paul to remain faithful, uh, Paul is not terrified of that day of his appearing. He longs for it. But every single Christian today must live out his or her life with the same focus of Christ appearing as judge. We are going to be judged by our works. Are we keeping the commandments of God? If we wish to have the same joyful expectation and confidence that our Lord's appearing as Paul had, then we must be striving to be Christ's faithful and zealous servants right now. That's what we must be striving for. The only way we can look forward to that final day with a joyful anticipation is if we are being faithful now. And we can never think about all the things we've done in the past. What are we doing now? Verse 30. The Lord says here, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. The Lord's authority for saying that he is coming as judge is that he only speaks what he hears from his heavenly father. As a man in his human nature, our Lord always perfectly desires to do his father's will. And so he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass away from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And it was the Father's will that he went to his death. And so despite his recoiling from the thought of separation from his Father's presence, our Lord took upon himself the sins of the world. And, and in doing so, his priority always remained that he might perfectly accomplish what his father gave him to do. And he is, of course, the pattern for each individual Christian today. Are we resolving perfectly to accomplish the father's will for each one of us? And are we doing so, setting our hopes upon the resurrection unto life? Because we are going to be judged on the basis of what we have done. And so we are exhorted in Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
So we are called to emulate the Lord himself in all our endeavours, seeking always to accomplish the Father's perfect will. And that means keeping God's commandments. That means holiness. It doesn't mean saying praise the Lord every other sentence. It means being holy. We read earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3. This is the will of God even your sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming like Christ in all holiness. That is God's will for us. We are saved in order to be sanctified. It is God's will that we prepare for the day of resurrection by our holiness of life. When God planned salvation in eternity, it was in order to create a holy people. Not just a saved people, but a holy people. A spotless bride. Are we pursuing perfection in our individual Christian lives? Romans 8 verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Notice what was behind the eternal purpose of God in saving us. That we might be conformed to Christ. Not just saved, but conformed to Christ. And such conformity to Christ's holiness must begin in this life. If it doesn't begin in this life, no one will enjoy it in heaven. Because we've just read in Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so no Christian can ever argue, oh, I'm just a humble sinner, I'm never going to be perfect until I get to heaven, therefore I need not be too worried about a lack of holiness in this life. Attempting our argument, because we shall never achieve perfection this side of glory, people say, well, I don't need to worry too much about it. But the Bible tells us unequivocally unequivocally, that we must pursue perfection. We are actually commanded to be perfect. We are commanded constantly to pursue more and more holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1, which we read earlier. As ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye should abound more and more. Are we abounding in pleasing God more and more? So we need not just to exercise some holiness, but to abound in it as we prepare for the great last day. And then listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. 
2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. A true Christian is called to perfect holiness. Not muddle through, perfect holiness. Not say I'm just a humble sinner to excuse his sin, but to perfect holiness. Going back to verse 28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So there is coming a day when men will hear Christ's voice, whether they like it or not. The dead are going to be called from their graves to render an account. There will be two types of resurrection. One of damnation and one unto life. And we know that our Lord clearly speaks of the day of resurrection as the time of judgment. The saved and the lost are going to be raised up on the same judgment day. Although sinners are saved by grace alone and can never earn their salvation, it is their works by which they will be judged. Has a man used the grace which God has given to him in order to lead a holy life? Or has he used the grace of God as an excuse to carry on in sin? The Lord says here that only those who have done good, that is, who have been holy, will experience the resurrection of life. Even our thoughts and words will be the object of God's scrutiny on the great last day. Our private thoughts will come under his judgment. Therefore, every single believer must be very carefully living out his life in the context of the coming day of resurrection. We should be desiring to do perfectly the will of God as we fix our eyes upon this coming great day when Christ the judge will call all men from their graves. And so we must be preoccupied in the light of that coming day with leading holy lives. May God give us the grace so to do. Amen.